Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. There's some sort of political legitimacy to someone's name being on TV or in the headline all day long. I mean, it happened with, it's happened with Trump, where it's like most people aren't paying attention because there's so many things going on. And so Trump's in the headlines all day long. What's your natural reaction if you're not paying attention? Trump must be the front runner for president or must be a serious contender. And that's how it works. I think a lot of folks in media looking back now, they have regrets about the way that they handled Trump uh, in 2016. And a few a few people have actually said as much publicly. Uh, but I also think that those same people, especially on the television side of things, this has been the most remarkable run for them financially and ratings wise that they've ever had. You know, and so and so how bad do they really feel about it? Because this has been sort of a golden era for them. And, and, and it's a really hard thing to sort of grapple with the fact, the fact that on the one hand, we probably did not operate, we, the media, did not operate in a, in a really respectable, ethical way in covering Trump's rise. Um, and yet, uh, Trump has been just incredibly lucrative for the media industry on the whole. Welcome back to Yang Speaks, limited series on the future of. I'm your host, Zach Grauman. Today is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. We are talking about the future of political media with Tim Alberta, the former chief political correspondent at Politico and is now moving to be a lead writer at The Atlantic. Before we dive in, big news that happened this week that I think is worth addressing. I don't do a lot of news updates on this type of episode, but it's important to talk about the trial of Derek Chauvin, the verdict is in. The cop that uh, was accused of murdering George Floyd and sparked uh, some really important conversations and mass protests around the country. He was found guilty on Tuesday, April 20th. And I think it's important we say this, that this is a good thing. This is a good moment. Um, a man who murdered someone while having a badge and a gun who was meant to serve and protect that human um, is going to jail. And look, there are a lot of problems in this country, a lot of problems in this country, and we are nowhere near close enough to where we need to be on a whole host of issues, specifically racial justice. But I will say it's good to know when, the, when all the eyes are on something like this, it is a good thing to see justice served. So we have a long way to go, but I hope this brings a sense of hope and renewal and um, relief for many folks, for millions around the country. We have a long way to go. Um, saying prayers for the families of uh, the Floyd family and, and all of the families and individuals affected by this trial. And it's good to see justice served. 
Um, with that, I think it's fitting to talk because the, po the political press and press in general have covered this trial in so many different ways. And I'm excited to bring on Tim Alberta from Politico today, or formerly from Politico. And we caught him in this awkward, to me, awesome transition between uh, his new job at The Atlantic Magazine um, and his former job as chief political correspondent at Politico. But he covered us on the trail when we ran for president. Um, I got to know him then. He has this, he's from Michigan. Um, and he, I think he was recording this from Michigan. Um, and so he has this middle of, middle of the country perspective. And I think he covers the right and the left really well. Um, and he covered Andrew well. He understood being from the Midwest, why he was resonating with millions of Americans. Um, and to top it off, the reason this episode is also great is Carly Riley is back. So I think I say this to Tim, but I was excited to do this episode because it's a topic that we actually have, we being Carly and I have experience in or some experience in um, in navigating politics and the media. So it's a, it's a fascinating episode about how the media works, why Andrew was covered in certain ways, why he wasn't covered in certain ways, why certain narratives emerge out of our political press and where this type of divisiveness um, in the political press, where it's going, where political parties are going. Tim is a fascinating, uh, brilliant individual. It was exciting to chat with him. I know you're going to enjoy it. So tune in to our limited series, The Future of Political Media with Tim Alberta, Carly Riley here on Yang Speaks. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. I am so excited. We're going to talk about the future of politics. And the reason this is exciting, because we've talked about a lot of futuristic topics that myself and Carly know very little about or have done, let's call it a week of research on, and that's about it. But this one, we actually have some legs to stand on because we have familiarity and experience in politics and the media. But we've brought on uh, someone I've looked up to and, and gotten to know on the presidential trail because I just think the way he writes cuts through in a certain clarity and a certain independence that I thought was missing um, in political media. So Tim Alberta has joined us, who's the former chief political correspondent um, at Politico. Welcome to the show. Welcome Yank Speaks. It is great to be here, guys. This is fun. And uh, the last time I saw you, Zach, was when we were jumping off the bus in, uh, in Des Moines on caucus night. And uh, yep. that seems like Quite literally a lifetime ago, before, you know, pre-COVID, pre-election, pre-everything, right? Like that that was a that was a, a different world we were living in back then. So we um, we did this thing, Tim, I remember texting me, he's like, hey, I want to do this kind of crazy idea. Like, can I follow along on caucus day? Not night, caucus day, and then into the night. Um, just to sense like the tensions and what candidates are doing and come riding on the bus. And I remember talking to Andrew, I was like, look, I trust him. Um, if you're okay. He was still kind of sick. He was recovering, but he's like, let's do it. And so Tim got the just all access pass, if you will. Um, and the piece I thought was, was, um, was great. And you were fair to us, which, uh, which I respect. Um, so, so thank you. Good to see you again. Um, here's what I want to start with just because I think it's fun. Um, I want to read, you just wrote this piece on Nikki Haley. Um, so Tim covers the right and the left really well. And, and what, this was the lead for this piece. Late last year, Nikki Haley had a friend who was going through a hard time. He had lost his job, was being evicted from his house. He was getting bad advice from bad people who were filling his head with self-destructive fantasies. 
He seemed to be losing touch with reality. Out of concern, Haley called the man and said, I want to make sure you're okay, she told him. You're my president, but you're also my friend. Boom. Uh, this is how Tim Wright sees the world and, and kind of hooks you into his pieces. So can you just tell me to start, like when you're writing a piece, and even and maybe there's probably a difference between where you are now and where you were as like a young journalist. But what is the what is the goal that you're given from the top? What in, what what are you incentivized by? If that makes sense. Cl clicks, headlines, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, there is a difference, uh, certainly in in terms of where you're at in your career, Zach. I mean, there's um, you know, there's no use in sugarcoating this. I, I think a lot of newsrooms now are sort of operating around a model in which you have a lot of uh, sort of younger, less expensive, less experienced staffers whose job it is to uh, fill the website with sort of um, clicky material, uh, and, you know, a lot of it through aggregation or kind of quick twitch reporting or in some cases quick twitch analysis, uh, you know, much of which winds up being garbage, but uh, that stuff is meant to sort of churn the machine and feed the beast and get eyeballs on the website, which then helps you get uh, advertising dollars and, and, and revenue. And that revenue is what you use then to funnel toward your uh, sort of upper echelon of reporting, your more experienced, um, better paid, uh, um, I don't want to say more talented, reporters, but certainly your reporters who are uh, sort of given a wider berth, given a lot more latitude to spend, you know, a, a week or two finding a story or maybe a month or two finding a story. Uh, there's obviously a much broader conversation to have about sort of the transformation of media and how, you know, when we were kids, we're about the same age, when we were kids, you know, magazines kind of ruled the landscape in American media. There were a lot of great magazines with great feature journalism, a lot of long-form work that you could sink your teeth into. That's not really the case so much anymore. Uh, a lot of the the resources and the energy has been sort of pushed toward the shorter end of that spectrum. Uh, a lot of kind of quick-hitting analysis and aggregating of links and things like that. So, my my mandate in my current position really is is uh, or in my current sort of phase of my career is pretty wonderful because I don't really have to worry a whole lot about links uh, and and uh, and clicks and eyeballs. I hope to get them obviously, but all I really try to do is tell great stories. I mean it it sounds it sounds simple and elementary because it is, but at the end of the day, I'm a big believer that you know if you can tell a really great story about a really compelling subject matter, then uh, people are going to read it, you know? And, um, and, uh, and for the most part, I think I've been successful in doing that. And, and really, uh, the, the, uh, the burden often falls on, uh, you know, those reporters who are younger and a little bit less experienced to do a lot of a lot of sort of thankless work, frankly, and I feel just really lucky to be at a place in my career now where I can sink my teeth into something for a few months at a time and really work it hard and not have to not have to be swarmed by deadlines in a way that I used to be. If you're not like an advent, like an active digester of news, you're just seeing a political headline. You're seeing a this headline. You're seeing this headline. And to me, there's not always an instant process of who the author is. And sometimes on the website, your work of months and months and months 
is equal on the website with someone who did it in an hour with, yeah. you know, ignoring a bunch of other sources and things like that. Like, how problematic is that? What What is the editorial process there? And should those incentives be more aligned from the, the back end? I mean, look, it, it's problematic to me because, and I'm, I'm super biased, obviously, because if I've spent uh, six weeks reporting something and then another few weeks writing it, and so, you know, the final product finally publishes after two or two and a half months of work, then yeah, like I, I want to see that story not only get sort of top billing on the website, but I want to see all of the internal tools uh, that my publication has at its disposal to be promoting and marketing that story. And, you know, to be fair, uh, in the places I've worked, they have done that. Um, I have, I'm not complaining that, that it hasn't right. been done. But anybody who's done that amount of work, uh, whether it's a big investigative piece or a long-form profile that you've written of somebody that's taken you a lot of man hours to put together, when you've done that, uh, you have inevitably, as a reporter, seen that piece on the same day outshone uh, badly by some piece that somebody put together in a half an hour uh, and they just sort of threw it online. And sometimes it's your own colleague, it's your own publication. And it's not like you begrudge them personally. It's not like you want to, you know, it's not like you want to punch them in the nose or anything. But yeah, it annoys you. Of course it does. Because it's like any, it's like any other line of work, right? Uh, there, there, there can be sort of an inverted uh, in, incentive structure at times in media, right? That uh, that that if you are faster, just uh, sort of more in the moment and more sort of snarky and and more you know better able to sort of tap into the zeitgeist of of, of the topic or the day, then you're going to have a better chance maybe of getting mass eyeballs on a story than uh, if you are just sort of approaching it in a more traditional way. So I mean that can but but that spans industries. I don't know that that's something that's just you know necessarily a plague in media. It strikes me that something that's like needed or missing in journalism and, and political journalism, maybe particu- particularly as we're talking about this, is like like a USDA style stamp of approval on certain pieces that have undergone a certain level of rigor as opposed to others that haven't. And I'm like curious, you know, I watched the newsroom, if anybody's seen like the Aaron Sorkin like newsroom show. And, you know, there was all like three sources for every fact you put on there and they were like really militant about it. And, you know, and I'm wondering, like, does that still exist? Is there still like a set of standards industry wide that are sort of agreed upon and whether whether or not they're slipping places? Like, is there a consensus among journalists of like, this is how this should be vetted or or done? It's a great question. Uh, There's a lot to unpack there. Look, I mean, one of the things that I love, and again, I'm super biased in this conversation, guys. Part of my bias isn't just because of what I do now, but it's because of what I've done in the past. So like my first job, full-time job in media was as a web producer, and it was doing a lot of sort of aggregating of links and uh, slapping quick headlines on a blog post of 200 words and putting a flashy headline on it and tw- and getting it on social media as quickly as possible. And again, like there's, I get why all that stuff is necessary. I, I'm not mad about any of it, right? But there is an obvious quality differential uh, between some of those sort of quick-hitting pieces that are meant to, as I said earlier, just kind of feed the beast, get the eyeballs, and create the space needed to do that longer work. There's an obvious, you know, quality disparity there. Um, 
it, it's interesting the way that you phrase it, Carly, as far as like, you know, it, it, should we be sort of labeling like grade A journalism versus grade D journalism, right? Like there's a difference between eating at a really a really fine steakhouse versus getting a steak quesadilla at Taco Bell, right? And like we know the quality of, of the beef is different uh, in those two places. Um, well, the thing that, you know, going back to my own bias, the thing that I love about magazine work, uh, and it's why I was really privileged to work at, in the magazine section of Politico, and it's why I'm so uh, excited to start at The Atlantic soon, which is, you know, in my opinion, the best magazine in America, is magazine work tends to be subjected to a far greater amount of scrutiny in the editorial process. So you have uh, fact-checking and layers of editing on every story you're writing in a magazine that just don't exist in other parts of journalism. So, And I really love that because I'm so neurotic and so anal about anything. Like if, if, if I find out that I have a correction in a story of mine, it literally takes me three or four days to stop being angry about it. Like, I, I take it very personally. So the magazine process sort of lends itself to that level of perfectionism in a way that a lot of other sort of digital journalism especially doesn't do. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Before I took the, the job to work for Andrew, someone said something so interesting, and um, I think you'll agree with this, but I'm curious thoughts. He said to me, as I was leaving Wall Street, he said, hey, just be careful with political journalists, because in the business world, so if you're a business journalist, you want to develop a strong relationship with your source, because let's say you're finding a young, strong entrepreneur, female, the founders of Rent the Runway. These women are badasses, right? And you want to get to know them, highlight what they're doing, but also, they're going to be successful for a long time, right? So if you're a business journalist, grow, you know, up and coming at XYZ Outlet, you want to develop a relationship with them. So then they start their next company, their next company, and they have an empire, you want to have an in. And what he said to me, the person who told me this said, on political journalists, you're going to have someone who's right out of college looking to shiv you because the way they get their break is not having a relationship, is just killing the politician. And in hindsight, I found that to be true. 
Um, as a general whole, like I didn't think that a lot of journalists coming towards me, there are exceptions and that's why we're speaking, Tim, because I think you are, are an exception there. I think you were looking at telling a great story and, and getting to a version um, of objective truth. But I think a lot of them are just trying to write the clickbait and screw you over most of the time. What, do you, what are your thoughts there? You know, so it's, it's, it's a fair question. And I think it's really hard. And it's not to give you a cop out at all. I think it's hard to paint with a broad brush because um, are some journalists going to be sort of unethical and or uh, lazy and just kind of look for a quick kill on something? Sure. Um, but do some uh, subjects, uh, some candidates, uh, some elected officials, do they deserve to get shipped? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so, thank like, God you're there because no one would have done it. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, yeah. And so, like, it's a little tricky, right? Because I, I think some of this is in the eye of the beholder. And actually, Zach, even, even sort of uh, looking at the flip side of what you just said, I think that, well, yes, there is a problem with uh, some journalists who just want to do sort of hit and run coverage that will, um, create sort of a, a bloody spectacle that gets a lot of eyeballs. Like, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. And in some cases, yes, it's going to be unwarranted and, and um, could have been practiced better. I think that there is also on the flip side of that same coin, a problem, uh, particularly with younger reporters who want to play the access journalism game and who mm. uh, and who want to be too friendly with mm -hmm. the people they cover because they are looking at it through sort of a long lens and saying, look, this guy is going to be in Congress for years. Uh, he's going to wind up chairing this committee. Uh, his staff are, they're going to, you know, he might be in a leadership office someday and his staff, uh, they're, they're a bunch of, you know, risers. These are people who are going to be running the town one day. I need to be in good with them. And so I'm going to really go out of my way to never publish anything negative or to really sort of couch any criticisms into kind of a broader critique of the institution, et cetera, et cetera. So like, and that's something that's always you know, been sort of, uh, I think, a problem in journalism as well. And so uh, you, you have these things that are, uh, I, I think it's easy to diagnose, but really hard to solve, right, practically speaking, because these are, you know, like, and, and, and look, I'm not perfect. I've, I've made tons of mistakes in my career, and there's probably people who I've taken it much too easy on that in retrospect, I, I should have been shiving much earlier. So it's hard. You know, it's, it's a tricky job and it's not to defend the, the institution as a whole, uh, the industry as a whole, because I think that there are bad reporters the way that there are bad teachers and bad cops and, and you know, bad, uh, you know, members of Congress. Um, but by and large, um, I think that there are some really important questions, uh, the likes of which you guys are asking right now, that we need to grapple with uh, in the industry. And I think the, probably the biggest impediment to grappling with them is the fact that Journalists tend to be a little bit thin-skinned and a little bit uh, a little bit uh, allergic to self-criticism, and uh, and I'm and again I'm guilty as charged sometimes on, on that very count. So it, it makes it hard to have the sort of uh, introspective conversations that, that we're having right now. Zach and I are are somewhat cynical about the state of journalism today, and I, I think probably there's a number of Yang Speaks listeners who who feel that way. People who were fans of Andrews who felt like he didn't always get fair coverage on the presidential campaign, or, or you know maybe now in various ways. Um, but I'd be curious, you know, in the span of your career, like, do you feel like there are areas where journalism is better than ever? Like, are there places people should be looking that where the dynamics at play are actually making things better than they've, they've ever been? My um, educated guess, 
uh, as to why some of the Yang Speaks listeners and the math devotees, uh, the, the, the folks who were you know, really fervent supporters of Andrews during the campaign, the reason that they uh, had a bone to pick with uh, sort of mainstream media coverage of him was because it was oftentimes uh, process-oriented rather than policy-oriented and because it was sort of focused on uh, horse race uh, you know, and funneled through a, a, a filter of like electability and can he win? And, you know, if not, then why does what he's saying matter rather than what is he actually saying? I, I felt, you know, and this is obviously all my biases. I'm totally biased in this conversation, but I, I also felt like there wasn't an effort equally across the candidates to see the candidate from the perspective of their supporters. Like I, I felt like there was an, it, it was like things were inconsistently applied where it was like, try and see Yang through the eyes of a Yang supporter, for instance, instead of sort of through the eyes of you who may be an Elizabeth Warren supporter. And I felt like th- that was so plain in the way that things were reported. And, and and I found that frustrating. It felt like, and you know, maybe it's unfair because I'm reading one journalist talking about Yang and a different reporter who's talking about Elizabeth Warren and I'm, I'm equating them in some ways. But, but that was part of what I felt like. It felt like there wasn't effort to be, to be generous which would be fine if that was consistent, but it didn't feel consistent. What I'm hearing you say also is like that there's not an effort always to understand these people, right? Like, the, um, and, 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 what, and what is motivating them, right? And, and for me, like that's a huge, it's a huge part of my job is when I say that I want to tell good stories, well, that's not just about like pithy, pithy turns of phrase and like, um, you know, memorable anecdotes. It's trying to uh, sort of peel away all of these layers and get to a place where you really, as a reporter, really understand something that you didn't understand previously, and then helping your readers understand that, right? So understanding the Yang phenomenon is a really important part of covering the 2020 campaign, uh, even if you don't think he's going to win, uh, even if he's you know, even if by the traditional metrics, maybe he's not raising money, which of course he did raise money, but by any of these traditional metrics that suggest, you know, that he's a long shot, well, that's fine. And yet, here's this guy who has no background in politics, who has no political pedigree uh, to speak of, who is inspiring millions of people to sit up and pay attention and get engaged in a way that they had not been before. That in and of itself is fascinating and, and obviously very much worth a story. And, and, and to my original point a minute ago, the critique of political press being far too process-oriented and uh, sort of uh, obsessive at times about the horse race and, and not focused enough on the actual policy arguments and how those policies are going to affect people, I think it's a very fair critique. My, my big thing is, guys, I think that we are constantly presented with false choices here. Like, there's no reason that we can't cover the horse race and cover the process of electing a president, which is important in its own right, and also cover the policy, right? Because these two things happen to intersect quite a bit. And like, as an example, you know, the Elizabeth Warren people don't like me very much because I was very harsh in my coverage of her. Has nothing to do with her personally. She, she ever, any interaction I've ever had with her, she's a perfectly nice woman. And kind of I, I, badass, it's yeah. not some. I don't have any personal vendetta. Um, but I, I believe that the way she talked about Medicare for all 
was completely insincere. And, and, and as a policy matter, it was completely impracticable, that it was never going to become law. She knew that it wasn't going to become law. It was essentially the same as Trump promising that Mexico was going to that pay for the wall, right? This was never going to happen. So from a policy standpoint, you know, I, I beat her up pretty good, right? And, and, and when it wasn't translating to votes, I beat her up a little bit more, basically making the point that I, I felt like voters were not rewarding what they knew to be an unrealistic set of, of, of policy promises. Um, so there's a lot there to sort of digest, but um, I, I, I believe that a lot of these criticisms are, of, of the media are valid, and, and I don't think we should be shunning them at all. We should be, we should be listening. Our first big political event was called the Wingding in Iowa. Um, it was in Iowa, uh, Clear Lake, Iowa. Um, this is a famous Democratic political event. Um, Love the Wingding. And this was, two, oh yeah, 2018. This is like off year. It was us who knew, but nobody knew. Um, John Delaney, Tim Ryan, and Michael Avenatti. And Michael Avenatti, who is um, a famous race car driver, very successful in his own right, became a lawyer and was Stormy Daniels lawyer and Stormy Daniels is the porn star who accused Donald Trump of a, a number of things. Um, and there was all this hype around Michael Avenatti. All this hype. Michael Avenatti is going to beat Trump. He's a bully. <laughs> Yang, Yang did a good job. Like, I, I can't say a great job. I can't say he brought the house down because I eventually saw him two years later bring down the house at certain moments. Um, and so, like, comparatively, not as great. But it was an early speech for him. It was solid. And it was definitely insightful, interesting. He got a polite Iowa standing O. But people listened, for sure. Um, he was one of the better speakers of the night for sure. Michael Avenatti gets up there. Everybody's supposed to be five minutes. Delaney, Tim Ryan were five minutes. Um, Avenatti goes for like 15, read from a script and was horrid, like horrific. I wish, I think you could find this on YouTube. It's so boring and so dry. Yeah, I'm not sure didn't I want to really find get the stand, Like didn't get the standing out. Like nobody cared. Um, this guy was like any objective person in that room was like, this guy isn't going to be president like he's like a horrific public speaker um the media swarmed him after and all every single headline out of there is avenatti stars in the and fires up the democrats and i was like this is just bs it's just a straight up lie and like the but my point was that the piece had been written before the event right like they were ready like how often probably when you're younger too maybe or how often your colleagues like told to go cover event but by the way you're there for avenatti like you're there for trump like what how often because when things, when the narrative does change in real time, I don't think that gets covered. And that was frustrating for us in many ways throughout the, the race. This is us. This is Zach and I just trying to uh, understand what happened on the on the campaign and all these things we lived through. Right. This is therapy yeah. for us, Tim. You're just here to talk us down for all the things we've been, hold, yeah. we've wrong, been holding on for this You're for a long time. You know, so like Avenatti is a great example, right? Of, of here's this guy. If you went back and looked, and I think that there was a, there were a couple of, uh, of places that did this that tallied his total number of like cable news hits there for a few months. It was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cable news hits, right? Yeah. For this guy who's a complete fraud, a complete, a complete charlatan. He's in jail, by the way, in, and has DM'd me from jail. I can't wait to show you. He DM'd you from jail? Maybe. Okay, it's the same story. So Andrew in 2019, was, I think it was during the Yang media blackout, was basically shitting on whatever the media establishment and saying I was there when Mike Lavinati was not very good. And Mike Lavinati responded. And this was after he went to jail for Nike fraud or whatever he did in that deal. Um, he's in jail and he tweets like, you suck, blah, blah, blah. And I retweeted him saying like, is Mike Lavinati tweeting from jail? <laughs> 
And then he DM'd me and he's like, he like rage <laughs> like, DM'd you, didn't he? You're a boss. Yeah. You're like, you're a boss. Just blah, blah, blah. You suck. Like you need to spend more time. He's polling at 1%. You suck. Like it was just I'm like, dude, why are you talking? I was nobody. I was like, <laughs> so I mean, guy. anyway, th- yeah, well, th- so this is, so he's a, he's a great example of this, right? Um, nobody thinks that Michael Avenatti is a serious person. Uh, nobody thinks that Michael Avenatti is a particularly, uh, you know, ethical or upstanding person, somebody who like really deserves to have a soapbox in the public square. But Michael Avenatti knew how to get ratings. Michael Avenatti was going to say a bunch of crazy shit. Michael Avenatti was going to uh, be just as sort of flamboyant and and, and as incendiary and um, kind of reckless rhetorically as Trump, right? And so they're going to put him on the airwaves. uh, And every reporter who can get his number is going to text him and try and get him in a story. I don't know that it's as prevalent as you would think that reporters are being sent to the event saying, hey, you know, Avenatti's going to speak, be ready to write about him. But I think that once the event starts, uh, for, for a reporter in the room who sort of um, has their own discretion about what they're going to write, they want to get, they want to get, uh, you know, clicks. They want their, they want their story to gain traction on social media. And if they just know from sort of the buzz in the room and from what other people are saying uh, before, during, and after the event, if they know that, you know, a headline about Michael Avenatti crashes the party and sets fire to Trump is going to get more clicks than uh, Andrew Yang uh, pitches uh, a freedom dividend, then that's the story they're going to write nine times out of ten, right? Like, here's a chicken and the egg question for you guys, right? Because I'm not trying to... um, I'm not trying to dodge the bullet here. I think the media owns some real culpability for this. But whether it's with the media or with members of Congress or with the Wall Street collapse in 2008, like we can look at any of these institutions and how they have failed. But how much of the blame belongs on the consumer, right? How, like how much, how much fault lies with the, uh, the, the, the Wall Street firm that was uh, over-leveraging individuals and and setting them up with bad loans versus how much blame belongs to the individual who over leveraged themselves and took out a mortgage that they knew that they couldn't afford. Where I would challenge that though is that is totally accurate until you guys choose not to cover it. Not to cover it at all. Right. I think that's that's right. The one thing we focused was like, we know that Andrew Yang is catnip. To me, like when you do have these dynamics, right, where you have bad behavior on say the part of Wall Street and you maybe have a you know, there, there's a, a mix of culpability between the consumer and the the market actor. That's to me where you have kind of government to step in or you have some sort of regulation. I know very little about regulation in like the journalism space. Is there a place in your opinion for regulation in this or or no, that just gets into really risky territory? Well, yeah, look, I mean, the First Amendment is uh, as uh, unequivocal as, as it gets as far as, you know, uh, what constraints we have in, in the press. But that doesn't mean... So just because we're free from any sort of official regulation doesn't mean we're free from uh, accountability. And, and, um, and you know, listen, the, the accountability needs to come from within. That's, that's the first line of defense, right, is great editors, great newsroom leaders who can help uh, to make the editorial process as rigorous and transparent and accountable as, as, as humanly possible, right? 
Um, and then I think that there's sort of a secondary uh, layer of, of self-correction, self-accountability uh, from, uh, from, from within the media more broadly. So from outside of your individual newsroom, there are media reporters and media ombudsmen and people who are, whose job it is from within their own perch in the media to hold media accountable. Right. And that's a really important function that we should be playing and that I think we don't really do well enough, frankly. And then I think to my point a minute ago, guys, about the individual responsibility versus the institutional responsibility, um, I think really the, 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 the market at a certain point has to speak for itself. Readers should be uh, providing the sort of accountability and viewers should be providing the sort of accountability uh, that dictates what we are producing, right? So they shouldn't be booking Michael Avenatti on CNN, you know, 30 times in, in 15 days, right? But why are they, right? Because clearly their, their internal data algorithms are showing them that, that traffic is spiking and that people are tuning in. And so, and and to me, that's where there's a real question about sort of consumer habits and how do we, uh, both as uh, members of the media and as consumers of news, like how do we help to fix this, right? And and like I'm just speaking for myself, I really try to reward good journalism. I try to spend my time engaging with journalism that's done right. And frankly, I'm going to piss off some of my friends by saying this, but like. I don't watch cable news. It's for the most part, I find it to be poison. And and what you put into your body is important, and what you put into your mind is important. And if you want to watch, garbage out, man. yeah, like if you want to watch, um, you know, I I have people ask me all the time, like friends, family members, like, well, then where do you like if you're watching TV? I said, look, if you if you need to get your news from TV, watch your local nightly newscast on the you know CBS affiliate or the Fox affiliate or whatever, or Watch the PBS NewsHour with Judy Woodruff and just get the facts and then shut it off. Like you don't need to stay up late into the night watching cable news because it's not really giving you much uh, by way of useful, objective journalism. It's just not. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button 
and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. So this is the attention economy, right? What you're doing is like, we're all, everyone's competing for your attention. Um, And there's some sort of political legitimacy to someone's name being on TV or in the headline all day long. And we happened with, it's happened with Trump where it's like, most people aren't paying attention because there's so many things going on. And so Trump's in the headlines all day long. What's your natural reaction if you're not paying attention? Trump must be the front runner for president or must be a serious contender. And that's how it works. And there was a moment we had, it was a, basically two years after the Avenatti moment I had where um, it was right after the Houston debate where we had done our like debate giveaway gimmick to become a thing. And our plan was to show a, a show of force in Iowa that we weren't just this like, hey, like attention grabber and, and with our thousand dollars a month, but we were a serious contender. We were going to go to, we did Yangapalooza in Iowa, we had a thousand people come from all Wait, over the country. Wait, can we laugh at the fact that we're like, we're a serious contender. We're we legit. did Yangapalooza. Yangapalooza. That's fair. <laughs> but that was more internally, but the Yang campaign, I think, pretty well. <laughs> but to the press was like, this is a big, and Yang did a different speech. He called it, the kids are not all right. One of his most watched speeches. Um, and it was a very different message. And the press that night was very disheartening was we were just not even mentioned. We weren't mentioning like the roundups, like we just got nothing. And part of that is I think on us where we had a, um, didn't have the same comms relationships with reporters. Um, but there was also part of that, like the media had, there were certain people they wanted to cover or decided to cover or that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm curious, ignore Yang, like, cause that, that, that's not the point. Um, my bigger point is what, is decided to cover from your end, your being like the collective media, collective you, um, ends up in some ways dictating who we think should win um, in its own way. And I'm curious of it's the media's impact on, like this chicken head problem, like the media's impact on our policy and our political parties and that kind of thing. Like thoughts on how you feel like either you or your colleagues get to shape the narrative in terms of serious political contenders. What do you think? Yeah. So. Look, there's a uh, there's kind of an age old uh, uh, divide in in terms of how candidates can get their message out to the masses, right? And and you guys know this obviously from having worked on on the campaign. But there's free media and there's paid media, right? And sometimes free media is also known as earned media. Uh, now now whether when you're talking about free media. Uh, you know, it's funny because traditionally it has been synonymous with earned media, which essentially means that you're hustling and you're doing something to get, you know, CNN to carry your speech or you're doing something to get Politico out on the trail with you, covering you, writing about you, whatever. Uh, you're doing something to get the New York Times editorial board writing something about your campaign, right? Now, what's, what's interesting to me is that whereas, just to finish the thought there, whereas on the other side, Paid media is advertising, right? So that's the that's the distinction. On one side, it's 
paid media, which is Andrew Yang going up on TV with 30-second spots and explaining his, his plan for health care or for the Freedom Dividend or whatever the case may be, versus the paid-slash-earned media is, hey, this guy is doing something really interesting. Let's send somebody out to New Hampshire with him for a couple of days and write a story about the groundswell of college students who are coming out to Yang rallies, right? What's interesting to me is that in 2016, with the Trump campaign, the line really began to sort of blur between free and earned media. And I guess what I mean by that is that they no longer really felt synonymous. That Trump actually wasn't doing all that much to earn the media coverage he was getting. He was just getting it for free because he was a circus freak, right? I mean, he, he was Trump was the bearded lady, and everybody wanted to see him. And we knew that – and look, you're talking to a guy who – uh, for the first, I want to say for the first four or five months of that 2016 presidential cycle, uh, and I was, you know, a, a uh, senior correspondent for the National Journal covering that campaign. I didn't write his name, or or if I did, it was like in a fleeting afterthought, sarcastic sentence. I didn't write anything about the guy because I just refused to give it oxygen. I thought it was sort of a joke, right? And then eventually. His poll numbers rise to the point where he's at the top of the heap and he's standing center stage at the debates. And then you're forced to cover him, right? Like you can't, you can't not cover him. But it's, it's in that period from, you know, June through uh, October, say, where he's just getting round the clock media coverage. And it's oftentimes for doing nothing. He's sitting in his penthouse tweeting something crazy about like Oprah or about, you know, Megyn Kelly or about, um, Rosie O'Donnell, and it's getting saturation news coverage. And, uh, you know, that's that's where I'm sort of looking around saying, wait a second, this isn't right. Like, this is this is not this is not a healthy way for media to operate. And, And I think the thing is, guys, without, you know, preaching at anybody here, I think a lot of folks in media looking back now, they have regrets about the way that they handled Trump uh, in 2016. And a few, a few people have actually said as much publicly. Uh, but I also think that those same people, especially on the television side of things, this has been the most remarkable run for them financially and ratings-wise that they've ever had. You know, and so, and so how bad do they really feel about it? Because th- th- this has been sort of a golden era for them. And, and, and it's a really hard thing to sort of grapple with, the, fa- the fact that on the one hand, we probably did not operate, we, the media, did not operate in a, in a really respectable, ethical way in covering Trump's rise. Um, and yet, uh, Trump has been just incredibly lucrative for the media industry on the whole. Well, there's, there's been public like documentation now, right, of the relationship between the, what is it, like CEO, owner of CNN and Trump? And I think this, this yeah, clearly put off sort of a, a downward trend for cable news and allowed, like, kind of gave them a lifeline for for a few years. Uh, I mean, I do have thoughts on on where cable news goes from here, sort of without Trump. Boy, I mean, the great quote that comes to mind was um, uh, Les uh, Les Moonves from CBS, who uh, he said very famously a couple of years ago. Um, talking about their coverage of Trump, talking about the media's coverage of Trump, he said, uh, it wasn't good for America, but it was darn good for CBS, right? And like that that puts a pretty pretty good bow on this conversation. You know, 
for me, um, what I would find interesting is the sort of thing that you're probably never going to get because it would put a lot of people to sleep. But like I, I the, the the little bit of cable news that I'll consume here and there is when you can put three or four really smart, really well-sourced journalists at a table and have them sort of empty out their notebooks and, and talk really sort of analytically about uh, a given policy debate on the Hill, you know, healthcare or immigration or, you know, the stimulus bill, something like that, right? Like something that actually educates people uh, and informs people rather than just entertaining people, uh, you know, uh, but look, you got to be realistic. Again, much of the enter- much of the news business, especially the news business after dark, it is an entertainment business, right? These guys are, you know, Tucker Carlson is an entertainer. He's not a journalist, right? And 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 by the way, he's a really good entertainer. He gets a ton of eyeballs. He knows he even though I think he's sort of a despicable human being, he he knows how to get people to tune into his show, right? And and that's the hallmark of a great entertainer. This is what always makes me laugh when you have people like Tucker Carlson. You have the the folks on the right uh, are always very like angry that Hollywood celebrities have a political opinions, and I'm like, why are they less qualified than you? Like Sean Hannity is like less formally educated than Natalie Portman. Like do you, like and and they are entertainers. <laughs> They're political entertainers, and to have certain people who have like no political background themselves political commentators yelling at the fact that like Natalie Portman has an opinion is such a bizarre and kind of just like such a hypocritical funny thing to me because to your point like clearly you are an entertainer like that is that is your position in this ecosystem god bless you for saying that because it's it's exactly it's exactly right i mean look the the, the difference between Natalie Portman and Sean Hannity is that you know she poses on the red carpet uh in front of a um you know, uh, in front of a uh, Planned Parenthood gala, and Sean Hannity poses on the red carpet in front of an NRA gala. Yes. Like that's that's the only difference, <laughs> right? Like they, but they have they have very they have very similar professions. They are paid to entertain people. At the end of the day, that's all it is. And I feel bad in a way because I do know some people who work at the 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 big three, Fox and CNN and MSNBC who are real journalists and who are good people and some of whom are friends of mine and I like. But I will say this to their face, like that your networks are like contributing to the decline of American civilization, right? And like we have to do something about this. And I don't think that there's necessarily a big appetite to do a lot about it. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. 
right now we have um, two political parties that are lost, and it's mainly be, it could be because of our media companies and institutions right now. We have the Republicans on the far right are just anti-Democrat, essentially. And you have Democrats that aren't really sure of what being a Democrat fully means. And that's a very like simplistic way of saying it. But I do think both parties are very lost. And I think media has a, a part of that. Where do you think they go? Where do we land 10 years from now in terms of our political parties? And is the media going to continue shaping them? Do they eventually buck the trend and it goes different direction? What do you what are you thinking there? You know, when we talk about institutional decline in America, and, and I talk about it a lot uh, because it's, I, I think, sort of the great story of our time is the, the, the public's loss of confidence in these core pillars of society, right? Whether you're talking about law enforcement or public education or the media or organized religion, we don't often think about political parties as institutions, and we really need to, right? Because political parties... Uh, the world over, especially in liberal democracies, when you have strong political parties, you tend to have strong and stable countries. When you have weak political parties, you tend to have very uh, disrupted and and disorganized and chaotic countries. Uh, and and what we've seen over the last, I would say, uh, five to ten years, and probably even take it back a little bit further, maybe say last uh, ten to fifteen years, is a sort of asymmetric assault on the institution of political parties in this country. And, you know, when we talk about Donald Trump, I often will bring Bernie Sanders into the same conversation, not because they believe in the same things, but because they represent in many ways sort of opposite sides of the same problem, which is that, you know, in 2016, the two candidates who did the most to energize their party bases, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, they had never belonged to those parties, right? Donald Trump had never been a Republican. Bernie Sanders had never been a Democrat. And it's not, it's not as though these institutions should be above reproach and that, and that they should be sort of insulated from the sort of pressure that a Donald Trump uh, exerted on the Republicans or Bernie Sanders exerted on the Democrats. It's that when they were sort of stress tested, those parties did not respond well to the stress test. And particularly on the Republican side, the party just collapsed entirely. Right. Like a, a, I've said this a hundred times, guys, and, and I wrote uh, about this quite a lot in my book, uh, which I will shamelessly plug. I was going to say plug it. Yeah. Right over my shoulder. American Carnage. The, the, the book was in large part about the institutional unraveling of the Republican Party because Donald Trump could not have hijacked a strong Republican Party. He, it just, he, he would not have been able to take over a strong Republican Party. It would not have happened. Um, what happened was the party had sort of become so institutionally weakened uh, by the Bush presidency, by Americans' loss of confidence in uh, the Republicans' ability to govern, and, and the Tea Party wave sort of decimating the, the what vestige remained of the establishment in the GOP uh, that sort of had the ability to uh, hold the line and sort of keep the gate and determine who gets in the party and who stays out, right? Like we all, we all sort of in a vacuum love to hate the smoke-filled room and the good old boys network and the gray beards in the party establishment. But actually, like there's something to be said for the party establishment. There's something to be said for the smoke-filled room. There's something to be said for this idea that there are people who are gatekeepers who can expel a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Steve King or some of these radicals from a party and say, no, 
you do not belong here. We don't want you in our club, right? You've similarly, on the left, seen this sort of continued stress testing of the Democratic Party. And I don't think that uh, had... I don't think had the imperative been uh, so universally felt among Democrats to get Trump out of office, uh, and that obviously leading to Joe Biden emerging as just this sort of consensus candidate, right? I don't think that uh, had those circumstances been different, we may have seen the same sort of thing happen in the Democratic Party in 2020. You might have seen just a complete collapse of the party establishment, and you might have seen a Bernie Sanders get nominated. Hell, you could have even seen an Andrew Yang get nominated. You you, you could have seen just the sort of complete uh, uh, sort of d- demise of the old system that sort of had, had held up for so long. And I'm not, again, I'm not necessarily saying that that would be a bad thing. As long as something that can take its place in a way that sort of serves the country in a functional and healthy way, and clearly what's happened to the Republican Party over the last five to ten years is not functional, it is not healthy, and the party is sort of desperate for a sort of renaissance, like the Liz Cheney wing, the Adam Kinzinger wing of the party is really trying to stand back up something that can function as a traditional uh, strong party establishment. But it's going to be really hard for them, guys. And your question is about where does this go moving forward? I think the challenge is, on the one side, Republicans trying to stand that thing back up. And on the Democratic side, it's trying to keep it up. It's trying to hold hold the line and not get sort of bowled over, uh, as has happened to the Republicans. You say that institutional collapse, you mentioned like the Bush presidency and, and kind of a failure of governance. But is there also an element of of just that party establishment and elite getting out of step and out of touch with like everyday Americans? Is that fundamentally what weakens them to the point of of collapse? Totally. It's a great. Yes, it's an absolutely essential part of this conversation, because and again, this is where this is not black and white what we're dealing with. Right. This is a complicated, nuanced conversation that has to be had. So there's a really fine line right between Donald Trump actually doing something that was really helpful and productive, which was kind of shining a light on the intellectual complacency of the post-Reagan Republican Party, right? A party that had come to believe that if it was good for Wall Street and if it was good for the Heritage Foundation, then it must be good for the American people, right? And actually, along comes Trump, who, after decades of living in his gilded penthouse suite in Manhattan, somehow had a better thumb on the pulse of the working class American than did anybody else in the party, right? Which is kind of the the, the great irony of the Trump era. But look, give him credit to a certain degree, because here was a guy who said, listen, all of your constituents, they hate you. And do you know why they hate you? Because you're a bunch of elitist snobs who look down your noses at these people and you have no appreciation for the way that they live their lives. And furthermore, you have no appreciation for how their lives have been completely upended by forces of technology and and globalism and everything else, right? And so there's a fine line between what Trump did to sort of call attention to these things, which was way overdue and really needed to happen, versus Trump becoming a xenophobic race-baiting bigot, 
who was sort of channeling the darkest impulses of these angry people and using it in a really destructive way. So like the flip side of that, right, is look at Andrew Yang, for example, right? Andrew Yang calling attention to income inequality. I've grown up around people who whose jobs right. at the Ford plant and at the GM plant and at the supplying companies have gone away and they've spent their adult years waiting tables at Chili's because of it, right? Like this is something that they've had to grapple with, that their entire communities have had to grapple with, that good friends of mine have had to grapple with. And so Andrew Yang calling attention to the menace of automation and how it has already begun to decimate the workforce and how if uh, it continues on a you know, on a similar trajectory moving forward, that we are going to be, as a country, reckoning with the sort of uh, mass unemployment crisis that we've never really seen before. Uh, that's a really, I think, a good thing, a good conversation that needs to be had. Now, were Andrew Yang to sort of take that and then cross over into a much darker place and use uh, the attention that he has gained from this first thing to uh, to and sort of channel it into a very negative, very ugly, very destructive and divisive uh, place, then I think that would be the bad side of it, right? And so again, it's there's sort of a a a um, a good side to populism and a very very dark side to populism. Looking at this landscape right now and where it's going, both politically, both media, with it, um, I'll, it's two questions for you. What excites you and what scares you? What encourages me and discourages me uh, is uh, almost, in some cases, the same thing, or there's just a, like a very, very thin line dividing them. Um, I think, you know, what encourages me is that we have more ways to reach voters uh, and reach readers, reach citizens than ever before. And that's cool. Um, but what discourages me is that some of those ways that we reach people, uh, it, it encourages really uh, crappy, sloppy, substandard journalism, right? So, like, that's an example. Like, there's a very thin line there. There's another very thin line between sort of the, the, the financial state of journalism. So there's never been more money pouring into places like the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or the Atlantic, um, but these sort of big national organizations, their footprint is growing by the day, and because of it, they can afford to hire great reporters to do great work, and that's a good thing. Uh, at the same time, there's never been a bleaker financial situation facing uh, uh, small and mid-size and even larger, traditionally larger, local uh, print uh, publications, uh, major metro daily newspapers have shriveled up from coast to coast. They are a shell of their former selves. They are shrinking literally by the week. Uh, their advertising dollars have evaporated. Their subscription revenue models are not very good in, in most cases. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to think about living in a community that does not have a robust staff of experienced reporters who can get out there into the community and hold people accountable and inform the local citizenry. And by the way, guys, this is all interconnected, right? Because when you when you no longer have a strong local news presence to inform you, then what are you going to turn to? You're going to turn on Fox News, right? You're going to turn on CNN. Uh, and, and and to me, that's, that's really problematic. Uh, so I think what Above all, what encourages me is that, um, you know, you, you do have, I think, 
a more engaged uh, electorate, a more engaged readership, viewership, a more engaged American public uh, on some of these big issues than we've had in a really long time, right? Uh, because you have the sort of intersection of, um, you know, of, of Trumpism and of COVID and of mass, you know, economic uh, disruption. And, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot happening in this country right now. And so I think because of that, you have a lot of people just, just, you know, starved for information. And they're and they're and they're coming to places like the Atlantic, like Politico, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post to get it, and that's good, right? I think the thing that worries me the most is just I want to make sure that that information they're getting is good and reliable and uh, and and produced in a way that meets a certain set of USDA standards. To Carly's point earlier, uh, without you know, without actually having that stamp of approval, because that's just, you know, um, as hot as, as blue skies as we might want to be about it, you know, it's just probably never going to happen. You're, you're never going to have some way of really, uh, regulating media in that way. Uh, and, uh, that's why the regulation has to come from within, right? We have to do a better job of making sure that that information is really top quality. My prediction, and Carly, I'm curious your thoughts on this too. My prediction is that as, as we start, we stop to trust institutions, we're going to start to trust people to fill that void. And it's why podcasts have grown and it's why um, some of these longer forms, it's why the, the Atlantic is able to, frankly, is pouring money into hiring people like yourself um, and that people are going to flock towards talent and the trust will be in that human, which is a little scary at times. Um, but there's also a certain level of that trust is earned in, in some ways too. And I hope that when people know that when we're coming on this podcast, they know like there's a certain point that if we're accused of, of lying or, or being dishonest, that you've listened enough and grown enough with us that you hopefully know and feel in your heart that we never do that. And that's kind of the trust is where it's like, well, I know Fox would never do that. That's not true. But I know Tim Alberta would never do that because I've gotten to know him as a human and that's why I trust him. I feel like that is probably where this starts to go until we can start get institutions. And maybe you start to see publications like The Atlantic, like hire enough Tims and enough Isaac Dovers or people that I love reading there that are writing stuff that you know has been fact-checked and sourced well and, and researched and well thought out. Car Carly, what do you think on that? I don't know what your, your thoughts on the future where this goes, given basically what Tim's saying Yeah, too. I, I, uh, I have so many thoughts on this as a as you kind of know, I definitely agree that there's a move towards individuals. I think Substack is, is proof of that. I look personally, I've, I've said this actually, I think publicly before, I don't read a lot of, call it institutional journalism. I read a lot of Substack. I have certain trusted people who who I really use as my filter through kind of different subject matters. Um, and I, I do think that's a, a rising trend. And it, it plays into this broader trend you were talking about, Tim, of sort of a collapse of institutions. Um, and we spoke the other day to uh, this esports individual, and, and we talked about how even, even on the purely entertainment side of things, you see the younger generation moving away from Disney Channel and onto like Twitch streams and YouTube shows where it feels more raw and you're building this personal relationship with an individual content creator, not a, you know, not a machine that's creating content. So I think you're seeing this happen across really a number of different industries where people are now drawn more to individuals and individual voices that they're getting to know through, you know, social media and the internet and whatever else, rather than these sort of standard 
industry machines. So I, I absolutely think that's that's a direction we're yeah. moving in. And look, you know, um, and, and it's not like the media would be an outlier in that respect uh, because, you know, people distrust, uh, you know, uh, the, the American healthcare system, right? But they trust their own doctor. Um, people don't they like hate Congress. Congress. They like their congressmen. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> they they keep voting for their congressmen to go back, right? It's yeah. um, you know they don't trust uh, Wall Street, but they like their financial advisor. So um, I, I think the trick, though, for media in particular, is to is to you know we're we're told all the time that we are our own brands, right? Now more than ever because of the internet, because of social media, that we are our own brands, and I think that that's true. But I am really a big believer in the institution of media and in these organizations needing to have great credibility. And so I've always really tried to uh, tie my brand in with the brand that I am working for, not just to be a good like employee, but to make sure that um, it's just sort of a, you know, rising tide belief that like at the end of the day, um, it's cool if people trust my byline and if they come to my stories because they like the stuff I do and they know that they can trust me. But I want them to feel that way about, uh, you know, any major news organization. Like I spent a couple years ago, uh, I spent a few days inside the Des Moines Register newsroom and I wrote a feature story about how this once great American newspaper that had like hundreds and hundreds of employees and published a newspaper that thick seven days a week has now just sort of shriveled into this, you know, ghost of what it once was. And all of the sort of cultural and economic uh, and civic implications of that, right? And it's, it, it was like, I got to tell you, honestly, without being melodramatic, it was like one of the saddest stories I ever wrote. Because not just because I'm a journalist, but because I grew up every day uh, uh, in, in Metro Detroit and came downstairs to my breakfast table and there was a copy of the Detroit News and a copy of the Detroit Free Press. And that was like, that was a big part of my life. It's like my brothers and I would like fight over the sports section and then whoever didn't get the sports section, you know, they'd go to the the comics or the Metro page or whatever. Like that was, but like, and my parents would sit there leisurely on the, you know, and leafing through, like that's a big part of civic life to me. And, um, and so it's not just about, you know, the people doing Substack, I, I don't hold it against them at all. Like more power to you, find a way to inform the public. I get it. But I feel like a personal investment in, in these organizations and in this institution as a whole that goes beyond just, you know, my byline. I think I can be very cynical about, to use the word you used earlier, which I, I use, gatekeepers. Like I, and and, you know, again, maybe partly this is, the chip on my shoulder I still have from Andrew Yang's campaign feeling like the gatekeepers didn't like us so much. But I think you make a strong case that you need a balance, right? Like you need the gatekeepers are not in in some cases can be good and powerful and, and needed. And it seems like you're kind of making a similar case here to some extent, right? Like gatekeepers, institutions, whatever you want to call them, like having strong functioning institutions actually is a powerful thing and a hallmark of like a thriving, successful nation in some ways. And um, so I I think it's alarming that that they are collapsing the way they are. Uh, Ideally, we can fight hard enough so that they evolve and not completely collapse because of their, to your point, Tim, their influence on certain aspects of society. And it's, um, Andrew always talked about it's either Star Trek or Mad Max and um, I feel like the me, me, me situation is probably more Mad Max than Star Trek, um, which is the mindset of abundance. So 
Tim, uh, uh, this was fascinating. Let me, so your book, American Carnage, I'll put a link in, um, but the other pieces is like, I'm just so curious, and you're probably not allowed to tell me, so it, you know, I will put you on, the, you don't have to answer this question, but if you can, I'm curious. First story at the Atlantic, where are you going? Where's your head going? What's your thought, what's your thought process? You know, uh, uh, it is uh, uh, top, top secret confidential information, uh, that I would have to kill you if I told you. But uh, let me, I'll say this. Um, you know, uh, we've talked about political media and, and I've spent, you know, the last 15 years of my life uh, covering politics. And a uh, big reason for my move uh, to the Atlantic is to step away from politics and, and really try and tell some stories about those other institutions that we've been talking about. Um, my, my, my sort of overarching goal here moving to the Atlantic is to is to ask some of these very fundamental questions about like, how do we hold this thing together as a country? Like, you know, because there, there are some just deep fractures in American society right now that are not going to heal on their own. And, and actually uh, they might get much deeper. And if they get much deeper, then I think we're going to be in trouble quite honestly. And, um, and so I really want to look at, you know, organized religion in this country. I, I really want to look at, public education in this country. I really want to try and uh, tell stories about rural America and, and, and um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, the, the sort of small town diner that's become mythologized to, uh, you know, the, the, the city uh, schools that have uh, let kids down. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's a lot to get into here. And, um, I, and I'm really excited that they're going to give me the latitude I want to, to go out and find those stories and tell them. So uh, I can't get real specific, but I've got a couple of big ones coming right off the bat that I'm excited about. That's all. That is healthy. And look, I think I'll say this. Um, I believe now having seen the inner workings of politics and media in the United States, I think if you can either be in that space as an outsider coming in, like come from somewhere else and get into it, or be in that space and get out. Being in politics and media offers so much perspective on almost how the whole world works and particularly how a whole country works. And I think it is really powerful and important for people to be outside of the, that space and get in and then come out and help or help within or be in there and come out and take that perspective elsewhere. So um, I'm so excited for you. I am grateful for you for taking your time, Tim. Thank you. Best of luck in the new role. And we'll I speak can't soon. wait to read your uh, your future pieces, Tim. Thanks, guys. Well, you're you're very you're very kind for having me, and uh, hope hope you and your loved ones are staying healthy and hanging in there. Back at you. 